Greetings to everyone in the precious name of Jesus. This is Reverend Dr. Gene Archer, pastor of the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn. Um, welcome um, to our podcast streaming from Toronto, Canada, or Brampton, Canada. All those who are on podcast and all members of the Pilgrim Church and those invited in, um, welcome. We continue our study um, concerning the teachings of Jesus, um, what he's Jesus saying to the churches today. And, um, and so what I'll be doing, um, that we'll continue our study that we started last week with the church at Thyatira. Thyatira, we find in Revelation chapter uh, 2, and so I'm going to just read the lesson um, just for those of us so we can have a, a sense of, um, you know, of what the text is actually saying. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And I'll read from the NIV. And um, this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads many servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart, hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will now impose, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to you to what you have had until I come. Let me read that again. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just I have, just as I have um, received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever as ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you that 
you're speaking to us through your spirit today. I pray, God, in this little corner of Canada, on this podcast, this live streaming here on Zoom, you are present. And we pray, oh God, that we will sense your presence. Even if we do not sense your presence, you are still present. Help us to take note of your word. Help us not to be distracted with the attractions of all the paraphernalia of Christendom. But help us, O God, to listen to your still small voice as you speak to us through your word. Drawn your voice, O God, my sheep know my voice. And here we are hearing your voice in these words. Help us, O God, to be prepared for the societal corruption that we are immersed in. Help us, O God, to shine as light in this darkness and to be the salt of the earth, not the sugar of the earth, but the salt of the earth, staving off moral putrefaction. So as we immerse ourselves in your word now, help us to um, heed it and live our lives accordingly. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, we continue our study. Just to recap um, some things. Um, number one, there are two churches in the among these seven churches um, that did not get a rebuke from the Lord. Um, that's Smyrna and Philadelphia. Those two churches did not get a rebuke, but all the other five churches got rebukes. Another thing to note is that all the churches had struggles, but they also had strengths. And so that is important to note. Another thing to note is that they are all held in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord is also among them, despite the challenges that they had. And as we go through, we see that um, in verse 18, um, these are the words of the Son of God. Here in Revelation, this is the only place in Revelation, in the whole book of 22 chapters, that we find the Son of God mentioned. Now, it's there, just like in Esther, where we find God is in Esther, but yet still the, the word God is not there. So it is with Trinity, we see the Trinity is in the Bible, but yet still the word Trinity, um, you know, you do not see it there. And so having said that, um, the words of the Son of God, this is important. And it's important for us to note, and I'll be, I've been dealing with this for years, that Son of God does not mean what we understand Son to be. In other words, if we try to understand God from a human to God perspective, instead of the other way around, we'll get into all kinds of heresies. You cannot use anthropology to inform Christology. You have to have Christology informing anthropology. 
There's only one mediator between man and God, and it's the Anthropos, the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? So it's important to note that a lot of us dump our human things back into God. Now, God will speak in the Old Testament, and he will speak um, anthropomorphically. That means he uses um, human terminology. It's almost as if you're stooping down to try and teach a child um, ABC, but yet still your PhD. So God does that when he uses anthropomorphic expressions like the hand of God, the eyes of God, you know, his breath, you know, those, those terminologies. So I'm going to clarify as I go along. So my style will change from time to time in the study. It's important um, to understand that. Secondly, is that he says, whose eyes are like blazing fire. Notice says his eyes are not blazing fire, but they are like. Note that it's important to understand the, the like. The, 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 these are, um, it, it's making a similarity, you know, and the blazing um, furnace is like a metaphor pointing to um, the language is just exhausted. It cannot, what is blazing fire? Blazing fire is penetrating, as we see in chapter one. Um, and in chapter one, you see where we see it talks about the Christian um, having this, the same Jesus who is immersed among us. Now, many of us might say, oh, Jesus is in heaven and the spirit is here now. Oh, yes. But when Jesus Christ ascended in Acts, we see in Acts chapter seven, Stephen saw Jesus standing to receive him. Yeah, that's fine. But chapter 9 of Acts, we do not see the spirit throwing Saul to the ground. But we see Jesus like a bright, shining light. It's hard. Why are you persecuting me? And he was persecuting Christians. So Christ is, there's a presence that transcends our understanding of spatiality. You know, what is spatial? We always think in a Greek understanding of space-time, but I'm going to go into that more details on Sunday in the next study. Um, but um, but the, the Hebraic understanding transcends just space-time. And an example of this is in John chapter 3 and verse 13, where... Um, some people think with a Greek mind that if God, Jesus Christ could not be God because he actually was on earth here as a man and, if, and, only, and God can be everywhere at the same time. He's omnipresent. Well, in that text, it says literally Greek, and I checked it out in my studies that some translations do not have that. But it says, no one has ascended to heaven um, are descended from heaven, except the Mount, the Son of God, who ascended, who is in heaven. While he was, when he was speaking with Nicodemus, he used the present tense, is, not was, but is in heaven. So he was there on earth, speaking in carnate, in flesh, and yet still was in heaven at the same time. Of course, not physically, but because God is spirit. So, you know, we're thinking about 
that localized kind of container mentality. And biblically, the container mentality is more than that. It, it transcends that. So even when we are in Christ, we think in the Greek word in um, containing, but it's more than that. There is, there, it transcends a kind of dimensional um, persona that we are immersed in. So um, just want to pause there for a minute. The blazing fire, his eyes are like this. That means his omniscience, his knowledge, his ability to see and to perceive those things that are hidden um, from our eyes. Um, the question should be asked, um, how is our spiritual maturation? You know, I've been a Christian for, I would say, huh, about over 50 years now, 51 years or so. And the question I ask myself too, you know, that excitement when you're born again and so on, how, how is your Christian maturation uh, in your eyes? God, the Lord knows. You know, um, this, this statement here in verse 20, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19 of Revelation, um, Jesus said to them, right at the start of this letter, he said, your latter works exceeded, exceed the first. In other words, your works of righteousness and so on, you have grown, you have matured. Can we say that about ourselves? Is Jesus saying that about um, Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn over all these years? Are we maturing in a sense? Are we more forgiving? Are we more um, loving to our brethren or do we get so familiar that we're just putting up with people um the bible talks about long suffering and there are two different greek words used for long suffering doesn't mean to suffer long but it means endurance um, um one word means to bear long in a situation Another word uses to be along with us in a situation with people. And to do that with much alacrity and celerity. In other words, you, you do it joyfully. You do it not just passively, but actively wanting to serve the person, even to the point of laying down your life for that person. That is what the Bible teaches. And that is what we need to keep in mind here. The question is, is our latter works, are, are, are our latter works exceeding um, the first? In other words, the last thing that we did is that more mature than when we just started. It should be. I'll deal with this some more, um, but just want to lay some foundation here about Thyatira. Thyatira was the least known of all the seven churches. It was very insignificant, but I always say never confuse 
obscurity with insignificance. They were maybe um, the least important um, from the point of view that only person that came out of theater was Lydia, that businesswoman. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 15 would indicate that. Yet the letter is addressed to um, this church, interestingly, although it is the smallest church, although they had lots of hardships, although they, um, they were, you know, they were not the highest politically or anything like that, yet still, this letter was the longest letter of all the seven churches. It's observed that this letter is the longest. That is, that's how God operates. He tends to, God is not partial in any way, but human beings, we would just normally just maybe do a few words to this church. It's not that significant in the scheme of things, but Jesus doesn't do that. Right? Although the church had problems, although this church is rebuked, it had the long, it's the longest letter. It's as if Jesus and all of them does not leave a stone unturned. He knows everything that was happening to them um, societally, politically, economically, and even at this level of their hearts and minds. So it's important to note that everything is bare before him. And we see this panned out because nobody informed Jesus to tell him. Nobody prayed to him and complained. We don't see that here. So even if you don't, we're encouraged to pray. But as, as Psalm 139 teaches, that is, that is Jesus there. He knows everything. Okay? Um, Although he was on earth and he, he does know the time of coming, that was from his humanity standpoint, although he was um, fully God and fully man. And so, although they are commended for increase in growth and service, there is toleration of falsehood and moral compromise in their midst. And Jesus does not just lump everybody together. Although the letter is written to the whole church, Jesus makes certain, certain distinctions. And um, we see in the Old Testament, the principle of the um, corporate responsibility. There's a doctrine of corporate responsibility. That means one person can affect the effectiveness of the whole. It's like the that yeast and the dough, um, in a bad sense in this case. It's like the um, Akon, you know, found there when it, when it got the feet that AI. You know, um, the Lord knows everything. It's like Miriam and Aaron, when they were complaining against Moses in their hearts and even quietly, and Moses did not know, but God heard and God stalled all of Israel during that time. So the Lord knows. That's why he begins all the time. He begins by saying that he knows. I know your deeds. 
But in verse 18, it says, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, that is not saying that Jesus was colored, as some indicate. But like, but it means that it means his, his foundation of purity. That there's no impurity in the very where he stands, right? It's not really, all, the, the purity, purity, purity. That is what it, it represents, um, right? I know your deeds. That not your deeds. What he talks about is thinking on the hearts of the people later on. I know your deeds, your love and faith. Oh, those are commendable things. Love and faith. Whoa. What this tells you, sir, brethren, is that no matter how squeaky clean a church looks, there are always things there that we have to watch for. We always have to work on ourselves. Keep, uh, as, as in, I think it was um, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, somewhere it says, um, we must be oversight for each other. Let's any root of bitterness spring up and trouble us and many be defiled. Well, in the, in the text there and in, the, in context, it deals with um, we must watch over. The Greek word used there means to be a bishop. Although we have bishops, although we have the Lord is really the bishop of our mm -hmm. souls, but yet still there's this delegated divine responsibility that we are bishops of our own hearts and thoughts. We know what's happening there along with God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. So the Lord knows, he sees what's happening inside of us. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance. Um, this is powerful stuff. And we can, we can say that for a church our size over all these years, the application is so relevant for us that we are, we serve God faithfully. We are sound in doctrine in many ways. Um, so we see a piece of us in all of these churches. And we see things in the, these churches that we need to see in us as a church. And he talks about your perseverance. Man, we have been knocked down, boxed about here and there. It's like we're in a foreign land, and yet till your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. <laughs> you see, although we're not meeting together as we, we, we are, but we are covering more ground than we did before in different pockets of ministry that are developing with certain of our members online and dealing with other people and so on and that is important that's what i want to see that is why that's one of the reasons why i did the convention as i did the last time is to expose the to bring to life the the different ministries in this regard and we'll see more of this that going forward but then in verse 20 well let me just give a little background first we're just talking here, but getting in some deep stuff eventually. Thyatira, 
was unimportant, as I said, from a city standpoint. Um, they had no significant military force. Politically, they were not high up there. Administratively, um, they were not that significant either. Um, they were packed with a lot of um, guilds, though. Just like how we have what is called labor unions these days. And um, this was difficult for the Christians because these labor unions back then, they were affiliated with giving allegiance to the different pagan deities during that time. Let me pause and say here too that uh, there are many Christians are so-called Christians that are mixed up in Freemasonry and also in Lodge. And I personally, I believe biblically that that should not be. As a Christian, you should not be involved in any of these things at all. They do not have biblical roots. They are actually um, not good, very evil and demonic. Okay, so I don't know. I don't care who you are. Okay, so that kind of association is not good. And the, the believers here back then, they were exposed to those things too, and they did not comply. This was flourishing in in um, Thyatira. And um, one thing is clear that. At the close of the first century, the church in Thyatira was both prosperous and active. Now, there are many churches that no longer exist now because their localized candlestick is no longer there, but the church is always, God will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Thyatirans um, aren't getting encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ among the deeds and works that Jesus knows, um, he itemizes them. Love, faith, service, patient endurance. Those are the works that Jesus sees. So you might get discouraged knowing that, boy, nobody's recognizing you. You know, um, pastor don't recognize you, this, that, that. Well, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And that's important. Sometimes I get discouraged to like that. Sometimes I, I don't do anything to get any praise from the body or anybody acknowledge. And so that was a good sermon or anything like that. But I labor in preparation. I mean, I over prepare because I do not want to be ashamed. I want to please my Lord. It's a sacrifice offered up to him. And so no matter what I'm doing, if it's one person or many persons I'm talking to, I prepare thoroughly the same way because it's, I'm offering it to the Lord, okay? And so that's important to understand um, from my perspective. And so sometimes when I'm getting discouraged and I see nothing happening, um, not that I'm looking to hear anything from anyone, but you wonder sometimes if it's reaching. Although I get encouragement, people say, Pastor, we're learning and so, you know, um, and the bottom line is that we have to encourage ourselves in the Lord because I do not know if I, how long I'll be living to share what God has deposited in my soul over all these years. 
And that's part of my frustration. And that's why maybe I tend to over-prepare and even chat too much and too long, according to, to some. Um, but, you know, a time is coming where there will be a drought for God's word, famine for God's word. And so the, the Jesus talks about his, um, his, his um, feet like burnished bronze. That reminds me of the fire furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, that they were thrown into the fire furnace and the Lord was there with them. And this is an indication to that, without, despite the persecution and trials that the, the Thyatirans were going through, the Lord is reminding them that he is in the fire with them. Just as though he was so with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As I said, um, the Son of God is mentioned about uh, one time in the actual Revelation, book of Revelation is here, only here, but 46 times in the rest of the New Testament. And so, and so it's important for us to understand that um, the church of the, the church at Thyatira are growing not numerically, but qualitatively. Right? It's important to understand that. And also, the church at Ephesus was backsliding. Thyatira was moving forward. And I think that we're justified then in adding as an another quality of the church that Jesus approves is to their doctrinal orthodoxy. The doctrinal orthodoxy of Ephesus, the suffering for righteousness, sake of Smyrna, the love present in Pergamum, and now we add growth and development in Thyatira. So all the churches were doing some good things, every one of them, in one way or another, although two had rebukes, but yet still had good things doing. Very important to be encouraged by that. Why? Because Jesus is working on everybody. That's why he sends his, this letter here to the church. And that's why it's mentioned here. Israel is not mentioned here. So all those dispensationalists who try to, to say that, that, that the, um, the, God's primary plan is Israel and then secondary the Gentiles. That's not true with a user, the olive tree analogy. Historically, God used the Jewish people, but not all Israel make up Israel. And so a true Jew is one inwardly, I keep saying this over and over, um, is, is circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And so it's important to understand God's people are one, right? And, and the covenant of God in, 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 in um, Genesis 15 was caught and um, by God himself, a kind of um, unilateral covenant, not a bilateral covenant. And um, because the Greek word diateke that's used instead of sunteke. And that is what um, and, and, and in, in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three, we find that that is 
that Abraham should be a blessing to all the nations. So according to Galatians, we are children of Abraham. Right? Because we belong to the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, and we are in Christ. We know all of this, sir, but I just have to say it again. All right? So therefore, it's important that Thyatira has grown tolerant of this woman Jezebel, as we said last week, verse 20, and her wicked ways. The fruit of this compromise had grown rotten and strengthened the very life of the body as a whole with their effectiveness. And Jesus, being the purifying one, wouldn't stand for it. And also, from we learn from this church in Thyatira that the Christian life is an ever upward movement towards greater heights of holiness and maturation in love and guess what theological understanding being born again is only a beginning not an end it's an inauguration not the consummation appealing to initial to one's zeal as an excuse for shifting into spiritual cruise control won't sit well with our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I and this is such, con, such of concern to me because I remember growing up in a church, a lot of testimonies were here when you have testimony times. At least 90% of them is once I was blind, now I can see, they always go back to their initial conversion testimony. No, that is good. But that also reflects some shallowness in spiritual growth. Is there anything new Anything new you can share in your understanding of growth in the Lord that you can bring a word of knowledge or encouragement to the body of Christ as a part of testimony of your deepening relationship with Jesus? That is what it's, that is what it's all about. That we might grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. Paul himself said that I, that I might know him and the power of the resurrection and so on. And it's what after about 22 and a half years after Paul was a believer. So there's a progressiveness in this knowing. The more I study the scriptures, is the more I understand how little I know and how much there is to know. It, it's, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, when you're young, you, 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 you kind of know everything, but so my goodness, there's not a day, I would say, at least a week or a few days and studying God's word that I'm not learning something new. And no man is an island. We are a body. And so we learn from others. I tell everybody that I'm first a Christian, then I'm a pastor. And so nobody knows everything, right? Um, the greatest scholar does not know everything biblically. And, um, and, and that is how it's supposed to be, right? So it's important for us, it keeps us humble and it keeps us in the mode of disciples, being disciples. We are always learners. The Greek word for disciples is um, mathetes, which is a mathematical term. We get the English word mathematics from. And so it has to do with accuracy, accuracy precision um, in following through with our Lord Jesus Christ through the spirit. And it's the word of God that will sanctify us, bring us in line with that kind, that kind of understanding. And so, words of complaint. Let's look at the complaint 
that Jesus makes here. These splendid qualities, oh man, goodness, a lot of them saw that. And maybe they're pardoning themselves, you know what? You can be complacent because of your because of compliments. And you can also be discouraged because you just keep looking at all the terrible things. There must be biblical balance. When Paul said, I keep forgetting those things which are behind, behind him in Philippians, he's not he's talking about the good and the bad things. Not just the bad things. The bad things, yes, they don't define us presently and future in a future way. But the good things also can make you feel comfortable. That's why Ecclesiastes 7 says there that do not say good are the which the good old days could come back. No, that's not right. Bible says not good to say that. Because what it does is that it, it makes us going, keep going back to the past. There's a place for the past. But if we, if we focus on the past, we will not go forward. We'll not embrace the future. That's why the, the, um, the, the building of God is like a tree, like a building. All the bricks, all everybody coming together, the spiritual house, the, the foundation, the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. So there is a building and it means it will continue to build until the Lord returns. And so the Lord states clearly the casting of Jezebel on the sickbed and the infliction of our children with great tribulation. And this is not the great tribulation we're talking about now, right? But this is a contextually to that local setting. I must make that clear. And, and to the point of even physical death will be an unmistakable signal that nothing escapes the gaze and nothing slips beneath the radar of his blazing knowledge and penetrating intelligence. So to speak, it is important to understand that when Christ judges against repentant, reveal all the Christians everywhere. Um, here is the ex is exhaustive, altogether accurate knowledge of the heart and mind of everyone. No, it's important to note something here. Um, Jesus in, in chapter 2 here in verse 23, he makes a very interesting point. Normally you see the churches, what the Spirit said, the church at the end of the letter. But we find something here differently. Um, it, he mentions this at the middle of the letter. What did he mention? That the declaration of impending discipline, he says, and all the churches will know. Not just, not just Thyatira. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So here we find all the churches speaking about now today will know. This, this does something to us, you know, because and it should do something to us. Because it means, it, it tells me here, it shouts that Jesus Christ is God. 
We see it in, in, in this verse 23 in two ways. First, he is omniscient. He knows everything. I, I, he searches the mind and the heart and will give each person a reward, a reward and so on, what you deserve. And so the omniscience of Jesus is a recurring theme throughout the letters to the churches. I know, I know, I know. The statement here is an allusion, allusion to um, verse 18, where it describes that his eyes are like a flame of fire that dispels darkness and burns through everything, right? Um, it speaks about the gaze that penetrates all human pretense. He, seer, he, he, he sees through all so-called barriers, try as we may to obscure his sight or distract his focus. Our Lord sees through and beyond every human facade, every evasive tactic, every clever, so-called clever cover-up. Unlike Superman, somebody once said, one commenter said, whose vision is um, uh, could not penetrate lead. Jesus knows no such obst obstacle. And so therefore, his omniscience, he knows everything. That's important for us to understand. Your knowledge of Jesus determines your purity of life and thought. Bible talks about tearing down. That's what we have delegated responsibility. Every high thing that exalts itself in the knowledge of Christ and bring every thought into subjects. And so we have the power to bring our thoughts. When the thoughts want to go and do here and so on, we are supposed to tell our thoughts what to think. Our will is supposed to govern our thoughts. That is so important. Thoughts go in the imagination, as I always say, and, um, and they, we, we give them shape texture, smell, touch, all those things. And so we always pass strings, things through our imagination. It's like I always say too, that um, um, may the words of my mouth and, and in imaginations of my heart, the acceptableness. Is that like you, you're, you're watching a television, so to speak, and um, or in a movie theater, and you are sitting there watching that screen, and if you are the only one there, you are the only one there. But just picture that is your imagination you're looking at inside your head and being. Well, you are not the only one there sitting watching what you're watching. Jesus also is there. Acceptable in thy sight. The quorum there. We are always in the presence of God and so on. This two things, it could deter us from doing evil. As I said some weeks ago, how, how dare we, once you know that we are immersed in life of the Trinity, can yet still sin and hate other people and other brethren and so on, who are also part of the Trinity. That is like, uh, what kind of, we don't know. 
this God. Every one of us is guilty of these things. And yet still, it can bring encouragement because you know that God knows the good things that you have achieved, even if others don't notice it. And But the second thing also is our Lord's deity is seen here um, too. Because, because he's omniscient, that's deity right there. But and I, I, the, Lord, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen throughout all of Scripture, even if it seems indirect to us. I'm teaching a course in hermeneutics, not the theological seminar I teach at. And um, many of us, I always say exegesis comes before hermeneutics. Exegesis is, is to know the, um, the cultural, linguistic, the, the, the context in which it was written to that audience. What, what are the words used? What did it mean to them? How did they understand it? You have to understand that first, if you don't do that and go right to hermeneutics, then you're going to say, okay, God did not do this and because English is so limited. So when Jesus um, made a lot of claims in the New Testament, because he might not use the word directly as we understand it in English, um, we think that he's, he's not making that a definite declaration, but they knew it. And I'm going to I talk about this a lot. I'm going to keep talking about it because that is why they started to, they wanted to kill him when he said, I am. They understood. We just read that and say, oh, that was not God in that. But when he says, I am, he said that, that is, he, he declared that he's Yahweh. And that's why they wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Right? But in our culture and our language, that, it, it sounds as if it's not so. You know? And, and, and so we need to be important, very important to, to, to note that because all through the New Testament, you see this happening with Jesus. We see it here again in this context here where he says that, but there is a second one here, which is deity. Revelation 23, um, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, literally. Now here Jesus is speaking, the same Jesus who was on earth here, the same Jesus, this is not a father now, this is a son who is still in, in his humanity, but glorified, declaring that he is God. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. So you don't have to find Jesus declaring to be um, God only in the Gospels. You find it in the book of Revelation too. Even so, powerfully right and it says here in jeremiah 17 i the lord search the heart and test the mind and literally in the hebrew the word mind is kidneys <laughs> strings to give every man according to his way according to the fruit of his deeds the significance of the letter here is that it is Yahweh who is speaking of himself. Yes, in Revelation, it is a description of Jesus. So Yahweh and Jesus are the same person. We think that Yahweh is a father and Jesus is some, some because we read the son thing into God. And then we, I, I have a son, but there's a time when I didn't have a son. 
and my son didn't exist. Not so with God. The word son used here means equality with. And we need to understand that we need to have our, our mind changed and not think of Jesus in a secondary. Of course, he took a secondary role for the purpose of redemption. But he is equal with the father. There is a, a, a few, there are a few preachers on YouTube um, because I score it who are against the Trinity. And they try, they try to find certain passages to disprove the Trinity and give all kind of Hebrew background setting what it people expected and so on. I'm going to deal with that some more on Sunday too. And, um, and it has nothing. The Bible, the whole of the scripture is speaking about the Trinity. Right? Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not just a, a, a baptismal formula, not just some um, addendum or some um, footnote to some doxology. No, it permeates all of scripture. We see it here again. We see it also in the book of Revelation. The Trinity is oozing through all of the, 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 um, the New Testament, um, Revelation. Here in Revelation, the scripture of Jesus, he is Yahweh incarnate. He is not only omnip omniscient deity, he's also the judge of all mankind. That's important for us to understand. He sees and knows all and will call all to account for their deeds. And so your view of Jesus, even as a Christian, ought to change. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're a Christian and you know other religious people, persons in other religions who think that Jesus Christ was a prophet and not a king, let's have a three-way and, and show them these passages. That's why I, be, I keep a Christ-centered ministry, because that is what the Bible emphasizes. Because the only way to know God, because Jesus is the exegesis of who God is. We see it in St. John chapter 1, verse 18. Hath made, no one has known, seen, no one has seen God, but God. What, what is one God you have? The language. I have a book, hardcover book, with just that verse alone, John, John 1, 18. And there are many books written about it, but this one, exegetically, you have to have a good, solid background for, of Greek to understand it and so on. And let me tell you, it's marked up like a, a, a drawing book, right? Because um, just in case I have to teach something about it at a, at a kind of seminary level, I try to appear as much as possible. But the point I'm making here is that um, Jesus has made him known, hath made him known, is the Greek word exegesis that is stated here. So Jesus is the exegesis of God. In him dwells all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. I know many of us hear this all the time. I'm not recycling things, but it is that important to make emphasis. And so as we return to the, the text here, we find that in Thyatira, um, there were lots of things going on, and Jesus knew the minds. And that's why he knew who was genuine and who was not, who was not just by appearance, but by 
his knowledge was from inside out, not just from outside in. Man look at on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesus knew his people, knew who were um, of the woman of Jezebel and so on, that group that was in the church. He knew them not from the outside observation, but from inside. That's why the emphasis is made here like that. And so here there's no miscarriage of justice, right? And um, nobody can say that um, Jesus, you know, this is not what you meant. You can't just come to you. This is not what I meant, Jesus. Oh, you can't do that with people. You can't do that with Jesus. He knows what you meant. There's some, some serious thing here. When you say the words translated mind, literally means kidneys, nephros. And you will get a Greek word nephrology from the kidney or any kidney disease. It, it's, it's often used to describe the innermost, secretive, solemn movements of the soul. That is what it means in Hebrew. It means those deep inner impulses. So we naively think are hidden from everyone but ourselves, are seen with utmost clarity by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every intent of the heart, every meditation of the mind, every fantasy, every fear, every doubt, every deliberation, every decision, every emotion are the focus of his penetrating gaze. No, this is deity right here. This is not no, any human stuff. That's why we can rest assured that when you're suffering, brethren, as did the brethren at Thyatira, um, the Lord knows. The disciplinary hand of God, and I like this commentary, this said here, the disciplinary hand of God, I'm going to paraphrase, the disciplinary hand of God is informed by this the, the vast scope of his understanding, his omniscience. This is important. Let us part here a minute. This means that God, Jesus, will cannot make any mistakes. When you peel away our deep core of thoughts, like an onion, Jesus sees it as if it's on the surface. No, no matter what we try to fabricate, we can't say, but God, that's not what I truly meant. Or, but God, I actually intended to do this otherwise. You know, you understand, really. God knows every motive, every premeditation, every plan, and every purpose. And that is why I parked here a moment, because the church of Thyatira is going through some stuff, and um, every affection is seen for what it is, no matter how hard we try and strive to conceal it within us. Every attitude is known for what it entails, notwithstanding 
um, or effort to convince ourselves and others that we never entertained such a thought or conceived such fantasies. That is why knowledge of God is hard. You know, the late R.C. Sproul was asked, and I, I use a lot of notes from him, I must say. The late R.C. Sproul was asked, what is the greatest problem in the church today? And many people give different views. Some talk about inerrancy is a problem. Um, a lot of legitimate stuff. But he said something that was very frightening, but so true. Is that we don't know God. The God that we think we know is a God of our imagination. So we, um, Billy Graham talked about many of us, we commit mental idolatry because we are worshiping a God of our own imaginary construct. But as you go to the scriptures and you, you work close to the text, you realize that this is what the, the, the metanoia, the renewing of our mind is all about, where the truth of who God is contours. That is why the tent of meeting was so important in the Old Testament. God would call his people to, to reveal himself to them. God is his own self-revelation, and he's, he is his own self-interpretation of that self-revelation. No, many people say, Pastor, let's talk about some practical Christianity now. Let's talk about some how to get this and that, that. Holy, do you know? This is what God has called me to. This is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not skimping around. He's getting to the heart of the matter. Even if we hear it already. We're like magnets. We just gravitate to stuff that does attach to us eventually. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. I'll read it because I usually quote this when it comes to my own self-examination and people's view of me. Oh, yes, I fumble and I sometimes don't give things much thought before I answer. And you look back and say, oh, my goodness, I made a mess of this. But guess what? It says, but with me. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, you do not redefine and you cannot redefine who I am. In fact, no, you care about people because you live right, but you can't please everybody. And Paul says here, in fact, I do not even judge myself. In other words, your view of you is not the final arbiter. I am not aware, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Your, your conscience is only informed by your past, your present, Others people, other people's expectation of you. Your conscience must be um, programmed and formatted with the truth of God's word. Nothing else. Think about it. 
he says, that does not acquit me. You think of a, you have a clear conscience, but in God's sight, you might be holding something against you still. It is the Lord who judges me. This is not condemnation to decipher the truth of what is here or not. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 5. Now, I was hoping to finish this tonight, but let me just stick with my, um, my compilation here. Look, look, let's look at um, spiritual, um, the spiritual, spiritual compromise that begins with distortion of truth. Sometimes not intentionally. And that's why where God has placed me, I have a strong sense of sensitivity for truth. And even if I think that I'm veering off a little, it bugs me a lot. Because if you veer off, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a train rail, rail, the rails. If they're off by a millimeter, another mile down the road, down the, um, the, the lines, you could have a derailment. That's where it starts. It is said that it's a pencil, a dull pencil. I don't know who this is, but a dull pencil that caused the Titanic to sink. Somebody drew a line, the dull pencil, and it, it caused everything when they put it out on the bigger scale, they were off. The point is, a big problem is, is that our spiritual backbone must be orthodox truth. The church right now has a kind of jellyfish theology. There are certain clear doctrinal, if I were to do a, a course, a teach a course in the church or so, on doctrines of the faith. There are some good books you could use as textbooks. The average Christian does not know the basic Christian doctrines, justification, all those general ones we know, and we might not even know biblically. We're just having a good time going to heaven. That's it. And so here, what was happening in the church Jesus said here in Ephesus, they first they did not hold those who do not hold to this teaching. In other words, the teaching of Jezebel, there are some who didn't hold to it. Not only did they not embrace the doctrines she had, but they did not practice her wicked ways because doctrine will be followed by practice. As I always say, you have to change your doctrinal beliefs in order to feel free to do sin. That's why sound doctrine is key because soundness of, not, doctrine is not enough. It has to be sound. It has to be true as God intended it. 
you have to make the text say what the original author intended it through the spirit. If you try to dump some other meaning into it, then that's eisegesis. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. Look it up. We must not be gullible, not easily persuaded by the novelty and the deceptive concepts as in the church of Thyatira. Every little new wind of doctrine, every trend, every Christian trend that comes up, everybody kind of jumps on it. And Jesus calls it heresy. They want something new and fresh. Let's excite. Don't worry about doctrine, man, because you know what? Um, you know, we're all having a good time. We're all in the love of God. No, the love must be informed by truth. And so the men and women Jesus addressed here knew that sometimes discrimination can be a virtue. No, this is not racial discrimination. Anything I'm talking about. This is doctrinal discrimination. In other words, I will discriminate when it comes to truth. In other words, I believe in absolute truth and yielding ethical principles and any deviation from it, I have an aversion for. And discrimination is to discern and put something over against another. Well, I put truth and soundness of doctrine over against because orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxis. Every practice is informed by some belief. You do not practice or do anything unless there's a belief that informs that practice. Impossible. And, and the whole ministry of the Spirit is to get the soundness of that's why Paul, that's why most of the that's why half of the epistles of the the New Testament is made up of didactic teaching epistles, teaching passages. Letters and epistles are overlapping and depending on the audience and so on. That is so important. But we don't like to go into those sections at all. And so, I refuse to embrace theological relativism as if one, believe, one believes is less important, as if, one, as if what one believes is less important than sincerity and fervency with which one believes. I, in other words, you could be sincere and fervent, and if it's not truth, you are dead wrong. Now, Jesus says here that these who follow Jezebel, and they are also going into what is called, who have not learned, those are those Christians now, who have not learned what some would call deep things of Satan. This intriguing phrase actually is very important for us to pause here a moment. Some believe it is a sarcastic um, reversals, reversal of the claims of Jezebel and her children. They 
claim to know the deep things of Christ. But actually, Jesus Christ was saying they actually are involved with the deep things of Satan. There's no middle ground. So some believe that um, the word Satan here is that Jesus used it in a sarcastic way to represent that the faithful in Thyatira are true in their nature over against those who are following Jezebel, they must be following Satan, doctrines of devils. And so, those of Jezebel may actually have used the word God, which Jesus deliberately alters to make the point. Instead of the deep doctrines of God, is actually deep doctrines of Satan, because not every time somebody uses the word God, it means God. You have to check the belief, the doctrine, the teaching. Okay? If you want to know more about that, look at, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 13. You see there. The deep things of Satan, some others refer to as a deep um, order to... Some people believe that, okay, you know what? I have to understand the deep things of Satan in order to understand the depth of God's grace. That is not true also. We find this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Sorry for the delay. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep, the depths of God. And so one must first plumb the depths of evil and the enemy to, to understand the depths of God. No, this was what Paul dealt with in Romans, when in Romans chapter 5, the last part, himself, shall, um, he said that where sin abound, grace superabounded. And so some were saying, well, the more sin and the more deep you're going, deep you're going evil, is the more grace you're going to get. The more you're going to experience God's grace and love. Right here in chapter 1 of Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans 6, um, Paul says there, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So this is what the, the church in Thyatira were practicing. They were dabbling into stuff, and God knows the stuff that the churches are dabbling in these days. God forbid if any member of the pilgrim church is dabbling into witchcraft, obian, necromancy, and clairvoyancy, and, and all these things. Are uh, even fooling around the Ouija board and all those things. Those things are contrary to God, of the devil. In any way, those who profess to belong to Christ are in a position of authority and influence in the church, and um, they cannot and should not be any dealings with um, the satanic doctrines and practices of ethical compromise. You follow the, follow the ethics, follow the morality. Where there's a lot of immorality, there's something else going on there. And so Jesus actually um, wanted the, 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 those who were faithful to him to, to continue to, be, to um, offer up sacrifices of diligence um, to their belief and behavior. 
Note the two Bs. Belief and behavior must be watched. All right? And finally, Jesus encourages them, those who are the faithful ones, he knows their hearts, to hold fast to what they have until he comes. The word persevere is what means immovable. Don't yield an inch. Don't cut any corners. That's why the Bible says, rightly dividing, cut, right, accurately cutting the word of truth. Now, it's important to note that, that many people get bored. People get bored easily with teaching and sound doctrine. They will, you know, I want to hear a different voice now. And that's fine. There's a place for that. I'm not against that. Or they want to, you know, let's try something different. I mean, the same old teaching, 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 and all that stuff again. People won't be able to, to be a sound doctrine. If you match them up against a Jehovah's Witness or some other religion or so, they just crush them to pieces. You have no, no depth of understanding at, at every level. You know, and you wonder what the next generation is going to be like. Because today's heresies, if unchecked, will be tomorrow's dogmas. And that is serious. Some people want to have what is called a fresh word from God. That will dictate the ministry and the mission of the church. Fresh word from God. Paul himself said in Philippians somewhere there, chapter 2, he said, only if we don't live up to what we'll know already. We don't even understand and want to live up to what we know already, and yet we want some fresh word from God. Lord, won't you hear from you? Well, God has spoken. This is, this is why this is so relevant, because Jesus is speaking to the churches today, but we want to hear some new fresh word from God through some prophet. And so, and then when somebody does that now, they say, oh, that's some fresh anointing. Some insight into scripture. It, 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 the depth of the insight is a measure of the anointing of the person. And so therefore, they seem to have more favor with God. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for for that, I remember I'm going to, I went to Jamaica years ago. I'm basically a teacher, and I was asked to do a week of crusades at, at um, a church in Kingston. It was packed all night, everything. And I dealt, I preached primarily from the book of Romans, chapter 5. And I did the work of an evangelist. <laughs> you know, and so I remember praying for God to really anoint me for the task. And I ministered in that way that I've never done before and never done since. And it wasn't some charismatic stuff. It was the, the focal emphasis. I, to my knowledge, my goodness, the Lord really helped me during that time with preparation and so on. And so anyway, um, and so it's important for us to note that um, although we have to be flexible, but flexible does not mean wishy-washy. We flexible, we're flexible in the sense of accommodating people out of love, but not accommodating them to compromise truth. Now, allow me to just go another couple of minutes because we started a bit late. Please, thank you.
Another promise to the one who conquers. Jesus says here, the one who overcomes and conquers um, are the very people who are persecuted, thrown in prison, and even subjected to martyrdom. What? Yes. I mean, Jesus did. Jesus spoke about all of these terrible things happening to them, and yet still, they're overcomers. They're conquerors. Paul said we are more than conquerors. There's another part in Revelation where it's mentioned a couple of times where um, the, the, the enemy came up against the children of God and defeated them, killed them physically, but not, not kill them spiritually. Right? And so the promise that Jesus keeps, Jesus, um, that they, they keep Christ's work until the end, they'll be given authority to rule over the nations, even as Christ has was given authority to by his father to rule in a, in a human perspective in that sense. You can see this in Psalm, Psalm 2. Who are what are these nations? This is we're getting into some areas now where, you know, you might not agree with me, but um, I'm not an, um, I'm an amillennialist, not that there's no millennium, no thousand year reign of Christ. But the thorny reign of Christ is a symbolic number that is happening right now. And I did some other studies about this already, right? And why this is so important is that um, the rewards noted here is the authority granted to the saints when they enter into co-regency with Jesus Christ in heaven. Now, that's why the Bible says we shall reign with him. Um, now, a similar promise is made to the faithful in Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The place of rule, governance, authority, as I also conquered and sat down with the Father. That's why we're told in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 that we were raised up and seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. Seated where? Exactly. What Paul is talking about, what, what about your Jesus is talking about here. You see, this co-regency with Christ is fulfilled now in heaven. That is to say, in the so-called intermediate state, where the dead in Christ live in conscious, intimate fellowship with the Savior. And let me put it another way. Um, the conquerors and overcomers are not merely those who Christ will rule, but those who with him know rules. Very important to understand that. We can grasp this glorious thing where um, we often fail to grasp the glory of what awaits those who die in the Lord and enter into his presence. Although it is an intermediate state between the present earthly existence and the final glorification experience. Um, and, and if it is, if it is onto that time where if it, if the ruling is going to come, when we get out on the other side, what nations are going to rule? No, I don't want to get into too many deep studies here with that, but um, okay. 
we're not, we're not, we're, we're being, I'm not spiritualizing things away with the millennium. There's a true and literal enthronement that is happening with Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord now. He'll not do, not that he will be Lord and he will do this until he offers up the kingdom to the Father. We find it in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh my goodness. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26. He said, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy destroys death. So therefore, this section here is actually saying that um, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And so if this reigning is done at the end of the age in, in the sense of all of the enemies, the enemies have to be put on until the enemy put on his he must reign. So he's reigning now. Right? And after he destroyed every because he hasn't offered up the kingdom to the Father, every rule, authority, and power he's governing now, bringing to the end of the age. It's not like, you know, a thousand years literally on, on earth here when, according to some views, the, the, um, the old sacrificial system in Israel and Jerusalem going to be reestablished and so on. Then, what, then what's the whole purpose of Christ dying on the cross and once and for all and the whole book of Hebrews for? Anyway. Let's not get into that right there now. I want to end on a note. Um, just emphasizing that the morning star, as it mentions here, in verse 28, Jesus declares that the overcomer will receive the morning star. Um, and this morning star, what does it mean? It's a literal star? Well, back in those days, um, the morning stars generally regarded reference to Venus, although it is a planet, yet is an ancient symbol of sovereignty in Roman times, according to Murray. Um, um, this is um, represents sovereignty. So what he's referring to is that he's referring to Jesus because he's the only sovereign one. Right, so Jesus was doing what um, Malachi did in Malachi 4, verse 2, where this, the son of righteousness shall reign, S-U-N. When he's speaking about the, the Greek, the Hebrew word there means the, I dealt with this some time ago, it means the, um, the, um, the servant of righteousness shall arise with healing in his way, not the literal son, but he was mocking the um, Ahura Mazda and the um, and Horus, those were the sun gods. There's a polemic against them. So Jesus was offering a polemic here against the, the Venus understanding back then. And so, in conclusion, in conclusion, we need to understand that Jesus says, that with all the ever-changing beliefs in our culture, nothing is new under the sun. This was happening in Thyatira. Although they are changing cultural norms and beliefs and so on, the church doctrine must not change. 
it is absolute. The ancient beliefs based on the Bible will make us stand up against all the false doctrines and doctrines of devils. You see, the doctrine of devils have to keep changing and shifting and so on because it, it has no stability. And so, let me encourage the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn. Only hold fast, Revelation 2, verse 25. Only hold fast to what you have until Jesus returns. That is a message here to the church of Titan. No matter what you're going through, no matter what the Jezebels are with the manipulation of people's emotions, feelings, to make you cajole you into sin, no matter what is happening, hold fast in your heart what you have in the sense of the truth as it is in Jesus until the Lord returns. We're going, man, we might die before that, but the thing is that you hold it no matter what right to the end until death. God bless you. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word will help us to see the relevance of Thyatira in our time. May we be encouraged, oh God, by your word to the church today as the people in Thyatira were back then. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.